magazine. And uh, today I think I have some very interesting material for you. Uh, some of it ties into our situation here with Corona and uh, specifically what's all going on with the davening. And uh, I also would like to share with you some interesting things that came up today in terms of what's going on with the, uh, with the situation in terms of Congress. This is something that we're aware of that other people are not aware of. Uh, in addition to that, we have some uh, articles about what's going on in Shita, both in the United States and in foreign countries. We have a, uh, a little bit of an alert on a liquor, and I think that uh, we'll be discussing perhaps also uh, the issue of Maisek Sotham, about giving tzedakah. But before anything else, let me share with you a little bit of what Rabbi Zygda Miller said. If you didn't have a chance to see it, a little bit of an explanation, a little bit of discussion on Lagba Omer. Uh, he's talking about the lesson that we learned from Lagba Omer, and I think it also is very appropriate to the time that we're in. So the lesson we learned from Lagba Omer, one of them is the, uh, that Hashem gave us a break during a very difficult time. Uh, Ramil was talking about the Sphira period, and HaKadosh Baruch Hu decided decide to give us in Lagba Omer a break. There are many people who keep the entire spirit to Omer, they don't take a, a haircut except on Lag Bomer, they don't do certain things except on Lag Bomer in order to get the 33 days. Other people, they stop at Lag Bomer, but it's definitely considered to be a break. He called Lag Bomer like an island, and for some people, it's already the end of the road of Sphira. And I think it's very appropriate to us in a double sense. The idea, you know, Lag Bomer and then the cave and the, all that kind of stuff. But also the idea that, that we are getting close to the end, hopefully, at least looks like that, to this terrible situation. And I think that Lag Bomer sort of was the opening up for us, for many of us, emotionally and uh, in many, many ways. Now let's go a step further where Rabbi Miller points out. He, he said... An interesting thing, and I think it's, it's worth hearing. Personally, I hadn't read it, and somebody asked me to read it. And when I did, I, I was very impressed by it. I thought I would share this with you. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai went into the cave, and he went into the cave. Romans had wanted to kill him. And the reason that he went into the cave is because uh, to save his life. And there's no question that he looked at it as a very, very difficult time is something that was actually what he calls, Miller calls, a, rumin, a ruination for his ruchnius. I mean, here he is with his son. The poor boy couldn't go to yeshiva. He was in a cave with his father for 13 years. You think that's something that's not difficult? It's a ruination. But what happened there? In that cave, they reached the highest pinnacle of greatness. In that cave, all by themselves, without the base of Medrash, they were in hiding. They had no rebellion. They had no chavrusas. This is so understandable to us today. And all of this as a result of a gazer of the Romans. Now, this gazer was a terrible decree. 
to have to go into Gullis, into hiding, is certainly a misfortune, we would say. But it turned out to be the greatest stroke of good luck that could have happened to them. And we learn from this that sometimes, this is what Mill is telling us, what people think is a misfortune, what they think is something to be sorry about, no, it's a chesed Hashem. It was a chesed Hashem that the Romans made the gezerah on them. And, it was the, and there are goals too. It's also a chesed Hashem, uh, a chesed of Hashem, that he sent us into goals. We have to know that it was a very great thing. It's a very big chesed for us. When you look in the Teichach and study it, you'll see that every one of the Puranios, one of the, of the things that happened to Klai Yisrael, the bad things that happened, is actually a very big chesed. You have to study it well, and you'll see that it's a very big chesed. And therefore, a man has to know that a Kaddish Baruch Hu has planned a man's life, that the things that seem to be misfortunes are actually for his benefit. Interesting approach and very appropriate to coronavirus. Now, I'm sitting on the top of something. I had it here for a long time. Uh, I, I, I never took the time to read it to you, and I'm not going to read the whole thing now because it's very long, but it's from uh, Rabbi Yaakov Solomon, was a psychotherapist. He wrote this a bunch of years ago after a trip that he took on, on an airplane, and he talks about davening there as opposed to shul. And I thought it's very appropriate to read this, and I'm sorry I let it sit around for a while, but I think it's even more appropriate now than ever because they're talking about opening up the shuls. Some of the shuls did open already, and hopefully they'll stay open and hope it won't be accordion. Hopefully it'll be that uh, they will be able to stay open. But at least right now it looks very, very much like there's going to be an end to this as far as going to shul. And um, yeah, the yeshivas are a little bit more problematic because it's a long time. People sit close together. Uh, you know, it's, there are huge numbers that go into the, in there. And uh, it's, it's a little bit uh, more complex in setting it up, but it will come too. Right now, they're talking about the shuls, whether they're 15 people or 10 people or different floors, different this, whatever. Somebody who was doing with a parking lot, he says, we'll dive in outside in the parking lot. He has six or eight parking lots they have over there, whatever. The point is, we're coming back. So before we go back, Maybe we should look at what we once had, which is right now, where people mostly are davening by themselves. Even though there are porch mignon, and many people have. A lot of people don't have it in a convenient way, and they can't do it. So let's just highlight some of the benefits of what we had davening on our own. So I'm reading now from Rabbi Yaakov Solomon, an article that he wrote a number of years ago called Heavenly Prayer. If you want to look it up online, you should be able to get it. Heavenly Prayer. And he's describing his experience on an LL line. It's a window seat. It's my seat, flight 012, LL. The local time must be around 7 or 8 or 9 a.m., and according to the map on my screen, we are somewhere between Halifax and Lisbon, I guess. It doesn't really matter. I just completed my morning prayers. Nothing unusual about that. It's something I've done every day for the past uh, many years. Of course, I'm, usually 30, 000, I'm not usually 30,000 feet closer to the ground and in a synagogue when I pray, 
but the words are very much the same. I like prayer, and I'll tell you why. First of all, there's something special about speaking to God. It's a chance to check in with my manufacturer and get a sense of what, if any, repairs are necessary. Maybe all I need is an oil change or a new filter or a lube. Periodically, a major tune-up is indicated, so it's good to stop in and, and open the hood. Second, life today, as you know, is incredibly hectic. I didn't explain why. And prayer time is a preset regimen that allows for needed breaks from whatever it is we're engaged in. What a statement it is when we choose to begin and end our daily activities with the service of the heart and also find time smack in the middle of the day to do the same. Third, I enjoy the synagogue. Men are directed to pray with a million, a quorum of ten, whenever possible, and I take pleasure in the camaraderie and unity that the setting provides. My occasional visit to the pulpit to lead the service is a little bonus. I wish it weren't so, but frankly, prayer is not always invigorating. It can become stale and hackneyed, bereft of meaning or purpose. In fact, it often does. Keeping one's prayers fresh and evocative, given the sheer frequency of this most holy pursuit, is a constant challenge faced by every man, woman, and child. There are no easy solutions. But prayer on a 747, of course, presents a whole array of different challenges. Remember we need to put your sitter in a you know, carry-on, choosing the appropriate time and space to pray, when, whether, and how to stand, and for men, donning the tefillin and uh, talus and tefillin while crouched under an overhead bin are all complications and potential impediments to a meaningful and dynamic prayer experience. And depending on who your seatmate happens to be, you may have a little explaining to do when you're done. But likely... But like nearly everything in life, even these clouds of hardship in prayer contain silver linings. Well, where did it, well to begin with, plain prayer, PP, he calls it plain, like P-L-A-N-E, plain prayer, has two huge advantages over synagogue prayer. You can come late and you can't leave early. How often are we seen huffing and puffing, even when praying at home, trying to catch the runaway Shachar's train, or ducking out early to catch the runaway commuter train, with no fixed time starting, and certainly nowhere to go when you're finished? Plain prayer offers you the rare opportunity to actually pray at any pace you like. An added bonus to this most unusual experience is that you're not forced to keep up with the rest of the congregants or the service leader. If you want to spend more time in a particular section, such as Shema and the Amida, you're free to do so. And so I did. I began by focusing some extra moments on the oft-mentioned starved, uh, attention-starved 15 blessings that open the morning service. Our sages teach us that one experiences the phenomena of the new day, you should bless Hashem for providing them. And he discusses, in this case, he discusses number nine, which is, which is, it, it, it talks about Hashem is Rokar Zalamayim, that he spreads out the earth upon the waters. Have I ever stopped to contemplate in the appreciation of Hashem 
formed a hard crust over the planet's interior made up of water, gases, and molten metals. Ordinarily, my eyes are sealed shut, and my, my, my lips are on cruise control until 20 to 30% of the service has passed. So now he's thinking about what Hashem is doing and looking down at the world. Another quote. And yet, usually, unfortunately, it hardly rates a reflection of any substance or even a second glance. I dare say today, however, I chanced upon the phrase therein that extols Hashem who constantly creates. Today, it gave me pause. Creation was not limited to one time, big bang-like happening. No, Hashem didn't just finish his project and go on vacation. Creation is ongoing, current, never-ending, and so is Hashem's direction, guidance, and love. Something to remember. Now, basking in the luxury of an unhurried plain prayer, I took a moment to consciously peer out my window. Usually during home or synagogue prayer, this activity is keenly discouraged, looking out the window probably because the outside scenery on land would likely serve only as a distraction, not an enhancement of the prayer. But today, I wasn't drifting off. On the, con- on the contrary, I was saying the verses. It's you alone, Hashem. You made the heaven, the most exalted heaven, and all their legions, the earth, and everything upon it, the seas, and everything in them. And you gave them all life. I'm not sure if praying seven miles higher than sea level really means the supplication is actually closer to Hashem or not. But somehow, I felt closer. Unperturbed by fellow congregants crying babies or telephones, unaffected by the boundaries of time, and impervious to all the usual distractions, I sat in my cabin of tranquility, just me, Hashem, and my prayer book. It was very special. Then I made a remarkable discovery. The word that is said more than any other in the entire Shemona Esrei is not boros, blessed, which occurs, you know, 19 times, or, or even Hashem, which I don't know the number of times, it is the word you, Ator. 33 times we refer to Hashem as Ator, you. We speak to Hashem, and we speak with great awe and reverence, and often in the third person, but more often we speak to Hashem directly, Ator. We speak in the second person. We say you. That's a little bit of a quote from... Some of the, uh, the a work called Heavenly Prayer by Rabbi Yaakov Solomon. I thought that would be appropriate together with Rabbi Miller's lines about the opportunities that we had in the cave. And for those of us who will be getting out of the cave, maybe the older people will stay in a little longer, but those who are getting out of the cave or more and more getting out of the cave, this is uh, a, an, an opportunity for us to focus on what we had inside the cave. It may have been tough. It may be still tough. It may be a long time yet, but it's special, and that's what we have to focus on. Uh, give, now back to the to other world, the world of Kashrus. 
So I was going to tell you a little bit about a conversation I had today, but I can't give you too much information because it's very private. The only thing I can say is that the cautious world is really struggling with this issue of foreign countries, way out where. Remember, I brought it up here a few months ago, and it's really important. It's a question of giving hashkacha in countries which are level four or five, which the government of the United States basically tells you to stay away from. Now, there are ways that these are handled by the cautious agencies. Right now, for example, where they can't actually visit plants, they've been using quite a bit in those countries. They've been using, in any of the countries, they've been using uh, other means like uh, cell phones where they, they, use, they have a program uh, and the, they ask the people there to take the, their phone around to different parts of the building and to show them what's going on at this moment right now in real time, but be able to judge on the basis of that, that's like a visitation. That's what, what they're doing uh, currently, many of the cautious agencies. So that's something that can be done even if we're on the other part of the world. Does that really work well? Well, it's hard to do that, to have tight supervision. It's, it's hard to say that that's good enough for mashkiach tamidi or, or anything which can be faked out and running somewhere else in the plant. You need, you need really better access. But for something like a, um, a spot check, it, it, it may work out well. One of the um, cautious agencies, uh, a gentleman spoke to me today, and he, and he was explaining to me how they have, in some of these countries, they actually have a not necessarily a rabbi and not necessarily a Jew who is their uh, person in charge of that particular country and who lives there, and that those people have more ability to visit the places and to, and to be on top of things in, in that particular country. So when it's harder for Mashkiach to reach that country, there are people who are stationed there, whether they're Jewish or religious Jews, uh, they still are, uh, could be in charge and could be utilized for um, some level of supervision. Again, what level the, is, has to be determined by the Hashgacha, whether the, this is something that that person could do or it's not something we could rely on that person to do. Uh, there's a there's a going there's a concern now about these different what's going on in you know in different countries whether they are whether they should be left alone in other words we shouldn't be getting product from there. And my own feeling is it would be lovely if we could replace it by something much closer and much more uh, able to be visited. But uh, it was explained to me the, 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 the amount of effort that has gone into building an infrastructure in these different countries that seems to warrant a continuation of the Ashkocha. So it's something that we're, we're going to be hearing more about. And uh, whatever I'll be able to share more details on this topic, I will. I'm actively involved in it right now, working a little bit behind the scenes on this particular topic, and that's why I can't really divulge what, 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 I'm, what I'm aware of. Okay, now let me go on to some things that we all should know a little bit about. One of the big topics that came up with coronavirus is the problem with, the, uh, with people becoming infected in certain 
particular areas. We know about the about the senior citizen centers. I mean the uh, the the the, uh, the homes, the nursing homes. We're all familiar with that problem. But here's something that is topical, and not too much is known about, is what's going on in the meatpacking plants. It seems that in meatpacking plants, which we call schlachthouses, the uh, the amount of uh, coronavirus is usually very high. Uh, it seems this in proportion amount to other businesses, and the reason is there's a lot of close connection. People working physically close to each other. There's a lot of schmoozing that goes on over there. Maybe there's a lot of physical contact one one with the other. Whatever it is, it seems to be that there's a significant amount. So this is a little interesting. I don't know exactly how to take it either, but it's factual to share with you. It seems that we're talking about May 11th, which is just a few days ago. This is an update in Iowa uh, with the government did a coronavirus testing at Postville Kosher Meat Plant, which is the former Raboshkin plant. And uh, now it's called AgriStar. And it's, they came there, the government came there, the Iowa Department of Public Health, they, they came there to test. This was a voluntary testing. AgriStar asked for it in April, but it, they, the, they weren't able to get the testing down there because they were busy in other places. They weren't able to get it until May 5th. So this is very current. And uh, it says that after reports of an uptick in COVID-19 cases, a strike team tested more than 400 employees at a Postville kosher beef plant. Actually, the amount they the people who were tested uh, were 463 workers. Now, I don't know what you would think with your number, but this is what happened. Uh, there were 12 workers who tested positive for coronavirus, which sounds maybe like a lot or whatever, but it seems that it was a number that they were able to work with. The testing was requested by Agristar, and, uh, it, but they were busy testing other facilities across the state. So they were tested for current and earlier exposure of the virus. So I don't even know if this 12 workers meant that they, anyone was sick now. It could very well be that they had gotten over it. This testing was requested as an additional step in the plant's efforts to protect its employees and ensure its ability to continue operations. The Iowa Department of Public Health reports 112 positive cases of COVID-19 in that particular county. It's called Alamaki County, which is a population of 13,880. So, it's a, it's a similar number to everywhere Everybody else is being tested. I mean, you're like, I'm talking about one in 100 uh, had it, and uh, the 12 doesn't sound like it's uh, way over the top there in terms of the numbers. Of course, it's uh, more than one out of 100, but again, these are maybe people who are over from it, and it doesn't sound like anybody said it, closed anything down or anything like that. And also, we see that uh, they were interested in being tested. Testing to identify positive COVID-19 cases will help plant management make changes in its operations and help employees that test positive to begin on a road to recovery. Uh, Agristar, there's a quote from Agristar, 
will continue to follow recommendations from the CDC and Iowa Department of Public Health while continuing to supplement those recommendations with our own enhanced guidelines. So sounds like it's being, it's tough, but it's somewhat under control, and I don't hear anything about them stopping. And so that's a, a good sign, because in other countries, there has been discussion of, and actually has been a certain amount of challenge in getting meat and poultry. And that's where some of these topics tie into. One of them is going on in Hungary today. Seems that Hungary, this is just also from a week ago, Hungary is now producing, it's amazing, Belgium stopped allowing Schrite in most of Belgium. They, they, they uh, outlawed Schrite, or outlawed uh, Schrite without stunning, whatever it is, but they got rid of Schrite in most of Belgium. Not all, but most of Belgium, or at least a large part of it. And in, uh, but, but yet in Hungary, it was a country that we didn't really think was going to be so nice to us after a while, but Hungary is now uh, producing a tremendous amount of, uh, of, of, of they're doing plenty of shrita, and they're servicing the entire uh, uh, European area. It's a very interesting story, and I just got this also because it came out, as I said, on May 6th. There was, there was fears of sure, a meat shortage throughout Europe because of coronavirus. So the Hungarian government agreed to allow, you hear this, 12 shoichtim, and maybe it's boikim also, but 12 shoichtim to skip the two-week quarantine and to come into the country and start shechting because they need the meat. So the, the, these are people that came from two places, interesting enough. Where did they come from, these 12 Schleuchten? Half of them from Belgium, and they came in, in May, and half of them came from Eretz Israel, and they came in April. And they let them go ahead and shecht, even though they hadn't done the two-week stint of, uh, you know, uh, uh, to make sure that they, did, they were coronavirus-free. I mean, obviously they tested them, I'm sure, some tests, but they didn't uh, put them into, uh, into, you know, into a 14-day period. Since many European countries sealed their borders in mid-March to prevent the spread of the virus, there was concern in, Hungary, uh, in Hungary's small religiously observant community that not just kosher meat, but kosher food of any kind, much of which is imported, would run short. Many, if most of these uh, shoichtim live in Israel, and they travel to Europe, it seems they go for a one- or two-week period, and then they go back home to their family. These shoichtim from Eretz Israel, uh, uh, okay, here it is. Just before Hungary's March 17th border closure, Shlomo Kovitz, executive rabbi of the Chabad Hasidic affiliated EMIH community spoke with the Hungarian Deputy Prime Minister Jolt Semzin, who subsequently raised the topic of kosher food at a cabinet meeting. This is so interesting how, how kosher got right smack in the middle of all politics. And they didn't get, you know, Republicans and Democrats here. Not only did he assure us that, he, that we'd be able to import kosher food as needed, but went even further to help the Jewish community 
Yaakov has told the times of Israel. They address the issues at the highest levels of government. Hungary, imagine. There are some modest means of production for kosher food in Hungary, including bakeries, a small dairy, and a 4,000-square-meter slaughterhouse, one of the largest in Europe, according to COVID. And this uh, Schlachthaus uh, and, uh, was built in uh, uh, it was built by the EMIH, that's the Chabad group, in 2017, and the purpose was to handle geese, but it was for weddings. But the end of the weddings and other festive events because of coronavirus, so they would the demand public plummeted. They didn't need it for the geese anymore, but they needed it for chicken, for which a basic, you know, for everybody to have. And therefore, they re they converted the process, the, they converted the uh, facility to be able to process uh, other poultry, which means uh, the chickens and turkey and, uh, and duck. So he said that uh, it says over here that the slaughterhouse expects to produce one million kosher chickens by the end of the year, with 90% of the meat to be exported to Europe's largest communities, including France, Belgium and Switzerland and Italy, Austria and the United Kingdom, yes, even the U.K., imagine. Turkey and duck production is expected to begin next week. So they're already started working on this. Amazing. The whole of Europe is going to be benefiting from the kosher chickens and the other poultry, you know, ducks, etc., that are coming out of Hungary. Imagine this. In addition, says Kovas, because many communities refer to have their own, prefer to have their own representatives present, present to supervise the koshering process according to their specific requirements, an agreement is being worked out, imagine this, with Hungary's interior ministry to allow staff on a rotating basis. In other words, they're going to allow the other countries to send people for the shrita in Hungary from all these other countries, even though they have strict rules of who can come in and this and that and the other thing. But for Shrita, no problem. Hungary. So it's like Shem, is Hashem able to make miracles? I think this is a miracle. I still remember, I still remember issues about Hungarians. And I think all of us who were a little older we do remember and I, and I remember how, I mentioned, mentioned it here before, I remember how they discovered that there were non-Jews working in the matzah factories. When somebody who spoke Hungarian was brought up in a Hungarian family here in Brooklyn, well, in Brooklyn he, he recognized two women talking to each other in Hungarian in the matzah bakery. And there were women in their 30s or 40s. And he said to himself, how could there be Jewish women in their 30s or 40s yet so late after the Holocaust in Hungary? He went to the, the head of the, uh, of the matzah factory and he asked him. And he said, yes, they're not Jewish. And that, that was, it created a tremendous scandal. In any event... Hungary now to be servicing 
the entire European community with kosher meat. That's, I think that's a miracle. It's, it's definitely a kosher. A Shradish Baruch who can change anything around. Uh, here's a quote that he has uh, from from the head of this. Uh, well, actually, uh, Kovis. Yeah, this is Rabbi Shlomo Kovis. He said the following: We're going to be slaughtering every week for a different community. So, for example, two weeks for France, one week for the UK, one week for Belgium, and so on. And we're working on a deal to be allowed to give them a weekly list of slaughterers who will be coming the next week, Kovis said. In other words, they're giving them permission to bring new people in, and, and uh, they will, the government is helping them out. He also noted the contrast between the ban on Jewish and Muslim ritual slaughter in certain countries. Uh, this, by the way, is not from people I quoted. Tell them this, is Reb, this is from Shimon Cohen from the U.K., the Shrita U.K. He also noted the contrast between the ban on Jewish and Muslim ritual slaughter in certain countries, notably the 2019 restrictions in some regions of Belgium, which forced large kosher meat producers to relocate, and the lengths to which the Hungarian government was going to facilitate access to kosher meat. How could you put those two things together? What Belgium is doing and what Hungary is doing. Well, the, the EU's open trade zone means that kosher meat is just as acceptable to Belgian Jews now as before. The ban has been seen by many locals as a sign that Jews are not welcome. That's what the Belgian Jews feel. It's the, the, the non-Jews are telling us, Igi hazman, seischem l'sholem. Of Hungary's recent kosher slaughtering arrangement, Kovas declared, besides the practical application, it has a strong symbolic message as well. In a written statement, Kovas said that there is no doubt that while there are those in the, in the world who choose to fan the flames of anti-Semitism, Hungary is choosing to be a role model against such Sentiment. Hungary. Wow. Uh, that, to me, that was a, a, a major, a major story. I don't know if a, if everybody, you know, without, you know, if your mind isn't into it, you don't, you don't come away with the excitement. But I, I walked away with the excitement. This now, this thing next time. I don't want to upset anybody. And if you want to, you know, take a minute off, or to, you know, we can take and do it. It's not going to be that dramatic, but. It seems that, you know, I have people, and they tell me, you know, I drink this, and I drink that, and, you know, they, they have the, this is like an underworld, actually, like whatever it is. There's a certain, the, the grapevine. You know, I remember when I was growing up, and I remember this over the, all the years, you know, the people saying, do we drink this? Yeah, we drink that, meaning that it has no ashkacha, but... It's okay, and Chaimi uncle drinks it, and, and this one, that's how they were deciding what you're supposed to drink. And people sort of feel like, you know, what's wrong with it? What's here? Nothing. So it seems that there's a, a beverage called shochu. It really is, uh, exists 
and it's made up the distilled beverage. They take hornets, and not the hornets, regular hornets, but they call murder hornets. They're two inches big, and they put it into this distilled beverage. They let it, they let it mix, and they serving it in Japan. It's a very popular drink. So, you know, when people go to a bar, I mean, at the wedding, and they drink stuff, and they don't know what they're drinking, and they just, oh, let's try that, or grab something, and they, and they or if they go to a, a place that's not so uh, uh, from, and they think, just what's a, a drink at the bar, you have to know that there are some serious issues. I'm not going to go into the topic because I don't think our people would enjoy it. Another Shlita issue was in Cyprus. Um, they, I, but I think I maybe I mentioned it. And if not, it didn't doesn't didn't amount to much. They wanted to do Shlita in Cyprus, but it it fizzled out. And the, the exact details of why it fizzled out uh, is not so clear. But I don't think we're going to go into that. We have some some time, and I would love to discuss this next topic with you, which is about uh, which is about Meiser. It came up recently. Somebody was asking about Meiser, and I'll tell you what it was. There was uh, the, the interest was in this, somebody got a gift. Oh, actually, he's getting gifts. Bar Mitzvah boy getting gifts, and the question is, he have to give Meiser. So I, t- I took a, a few minutes to look into the topic of Meiser, and I'm going to share with you some things that I found. In an interesting article from the from this uh, organization called the International Base Horror, the Institute for Dayanim. It's a very popular thing on, that's on the, the uh, on the internet, and they have uh, a uh, the questions and answers. It's, you can get it at Din Online, D-I-N Online, appropriate name, huh? Din Online. Hey, that's the it's the international base horror. Pretty straight things on there. I don't think you have anything that you wouldn't like. In any event, uh, he's talking over here about how do you view Meiser Ksofen. You know, in the Torah it talks about Meiser, Truma and Meiser. And there's two, two types of Meiser. And there's, and there's actually uh, a third Meiser, right? So, but basically, Meiser is a tenth but it was a tenth of what grows in the ground. That was a miser. Truma was given to the coin. Miser was given to the levy. Uh, the miser Rishon and miser Shani, you took to Rishalayim, or every third in the sixth year, you gave it to the Oni. But the miser was always a tenth. But it was always about what grows in the ground. Today, most of us don't plant anything except some flowers in the front and the back. So where where is this? What about miser from the money that we earn, and what about things that we win? We win the, you know, you you put down on the uh, the auction and the uh, Chinese auction, and you won thirty six thousand dollars, or you uh, or you got a gift. When one one child I just saw, he won five hundred dollars for learning. Believe it or not, he learned and he got as a raffle. And there was a the raffle. There were three people, three winners. Two got five hundred dollars each, and the main winner got a thousand dollars. 
little boys, not eight-year-old boys, eight, nine-year-old boys, $500, $1,000. Boy, the world has changed. Remember when they used to die for the bike or something like that? Nothing. What are you talking about? A little kid, third grade, is, 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 third and fourth grade, is going to get $1,000. Unbelievable. <laughs> so anyway, the question is, we have to give Meiser. So he wasn't in a rush. <laughs> he wasn't in a rush. But uh, hopefully they'll be able to convince him to do it with a good training. But is there a chiyuv? Well, forget about the kit. Is there a chiyuv for anybody? If you get a gift, if you win something, if you find something, okay, these are real shilas. If you earn something, how do you work at it? Well, it can't be, you know, if you're doing mice suffering like you're going to do like mice on the ground, things that you plant so you can take off all the expenses for, the, for that so the question is, what expenses can you remove? It's a whole thing. Go buy the Chofetz Chaim Sefer on it, or some other Sefer, and you learn how to do Meisah Ksofen. But we're talking about the actual concept, what is the responsibility and what is not the responsibility. I'm always reminded about the famous story of Rav Yaakov Kamenevsky, who took the becher that he got to a pawn shop, he got it at some somebody gave it, some organization or whatever it is. They gave him a becher, you know, covered the, the matana, very chashuv matana. I'm sure it cost a few hundred dollars at least in those days. And he he went to the he went to a uh, a pawn shop, and the pawn broker said to him, "So one look at Rabbi Kamenetsky, even if he wasn't Jewish, what are you? What's your problem? <laughs> Why?" So he explained to him, "Listen." I want to know the value of this. Is it because I got it as a gift and I have to report it on my taxes? That's the first and last person I ever heard who who takes a gift and puts it on his taxes return. But this is a tax return before Kaddish Baruch Hu, and all of us have to think about whether we have to or we don't have to. So let's at least hear clearly once what this is all about. It, the Gemara uh, gives a great importance to tzedakah. We know that it's equal to Baba Basra says it's, it, it outweighs all the other mitzvahs in the Torah. We know the Gemara and Baba Basra does Yud Amud Aleph. Everyone should look it up. It says that tzedakah is a tremendous importance because it brings us closer to redemption, it brings us to the Geula. So very important, and we know Asir Tas Tas Asher, and you could tempt that you could test Hashem. Okay, we know all that. We're not going into that right now. But the question is, what do you have to give? So Chazal said very clearly, Sedaka is very important. How much must you give? You must give a third of a shekel every year, and that is an amount that even a poor person. Who is dependent on charity is able, he has to give it, which means it's not a lot of money. This is in the Gemara in Baba Vasra, Daftesa Medalif. You can look it up in the Shulchan Aruch and the Aruch Shulchan Yerdeya Reish Mem Ches Ois Dalid, and in Derech Amuna Matnas Aniim Zayin Samach. Yes. It's a very 
small amount. That's the chiyuv that we understand that you have every year to give tzedakah. Very, 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 very small amount. Not 10% of anything. And even, as I said, even a poor person would be able to give it. What about the Maisa, though? Okay, Toysvis on Intanis, Daf Tes, Amudal, Tes Tes, says that from the Sifri, he says that, that, that we find there's a, there's a requirement to give a tenth, not just of the field, but also to any form of income, all forms of income. Interest from non-Jews, business dealings, any other income. That's a tesis. So that's, you know, saying a separate thing from tzedakah. There's one level thing called tzedakah, and there's another thing called maaseh. But the question is how we view that. Uh, so so uh, do you ha- you're supposed to, when you give that, if you give money for tzedakah, and you're going to give more than 10%, the Sfarim bring down that you should give 10% first and then it on the others afterwards. In other words, 10% is the responsibility, and the additional money should be separate so you fulfill a real requirement and make sure that your 10% is done. Uh, if you want to look it up, the Shus, the Shut Chovas uh, Yair discusses it. And time was not doing too well here. Um, that, that's the Shut Chovas Yair Reish Lamed Dalit. The Mishnas Chachamim in the Pischei Tshuva Yeridea Reish Mem Tes Sif Base says. You approximate uh, when, you, when you, you separate kasafim, and there's, you, there's no need to give exactly one tenth. Give a, a kain, give something like that, but it doesn't say you have to be dafka careful to give only the ten percent. Some have followed the Vilna Gon and they actually give twenty percent. The Vilna Gon said you should give twenty percent, but even when they give the twenty percent, the Chavetz Chaim brings down an avas chesed that you should make sure that uh, you, you give uh, the, the, the 10% first and then add on the other 10%. Actually, that's not a Yehuda, I'm sorry. Even in, in this case, one should preferably give Maisa twice. Yeah, the Chavazchaset, the Chavazchaim and Chavazchaset tells you to do it as two gifts of 10%, but get that 10% in separately to have the concept of Maaser. The Nodav Yehuda says, that you should keep it a list of how much you give once or twice a year, figure out the calculations, and make sure you get at least the 10%. But this 10%, this maaser, is an obligation or minic. So there's three different opinions. Some hold that it's from the Torah, others consider it the Rabbanan, and others consider it a minhag, a custom. The Taisus that we quoted, so there over there, of David Oppenheim in the Shut Chavas he says that the concept of giving Meiser is 100% a full obligation. But uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's Minatayra. It's possible it's the Rabbanin. And the Rabbanin, when they, they said it, they, they just were Soymach on the, on the Pasuk, but it's not really Minatayra. The Bach, on the other hand, 
he, he holds that it's permitted to use your own miser money for the purpose of paying off debts. You owe money, you take the miser money for that. In other words, uh, it, 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 this indicates that, that the actual giving of miser is not considered an obligation at all. The Bach holds that giving a, a giving miser of, of other income, things that you earn, you know, monies that you earn, is only a minic. And it can, you, you can pay off the money that you owe to somebody, but priyas chabalcho is a mitzvah. And if you owe money, you should pay it off, even using miser money. That's how the Bach holds. So it's completely different than we were saying earlier. The Taz holds that miser is a full obligation, and you can't in any way use it for anything that you owe. And there's a whole shyly, and everybody knows that question, can you use it for your schalimut, for your children, and this and that. that. That's usually for your own purposes, and I'm not getting into it. But many authorities hold like the Bach, that there's no, it's only a minute. And that's, that people should feel, uh, remember that the real mitzvah of tzedakah is a third of a shekel, which uh, everybody's here, I would say, during the year. And as far as the Maisa Ksofim, it's a three-way machlaikas. And uh, you see that the Taz and the Bach both agree that, the, uh, that, the, that it's, it's only a minute. Um, but once one has started giving Maisa, then it becomes a nether. And you'll have to, you'd have to be mapped a nether if you, were, if you were accustomed to giving yourself Maisa and finding it difficult. You should get some. You should get three people to be matzuneder. Now, what about the gifts? So, Rabbeinu Yonah says, any income, including teaching, writing, working, or even if you find something or you get a gift, whether it's gold or silver or money, it, from all of them you have to take a tenth of the value. That's Rabbeinu Yonah. What about an inheritance? So this is a big problem. Inheritance is a huge issue, and the share supporting the son-in-law and his daughter is a very big issue. So inheritance, the Pisrei Tshuva says that there's an, the full obligation applies, that even if the person who died had, had always taken Misa from all his money his whole life, you, the inheritor, the one who inherits, should have to take, all the, take a tenth of all the money you inherit and give it to the stock. That's the, the, that's the Pisgah Tshuva brings. Um, he says it's a din in the Gavra, not in the Chepza. The person has to give the tenth, not that the money has to have a tenth that's taken away. The Gavra, not the Chepza. Under certain special circumstances, a person who gives a gift is able to take off Miser twice, and the other person doesn't have to take it off at all. In other words, and in Poland, it was customary for the, when they gave gifts to the children who were getting married that they took off a double portion, like like 20%. 10% was their own amount, or as they earned the money, they took the 10% off. And then, then they took the 10% off for the person who would be receiving it so he or she would not have to take it off. That's how they did it. it was in Poland. It was a, it was a minig. In Ramosha Feinstein says, that somebody who get, asked them a question, it's in Yoridea, Chelek, uh, base Yoridea, uh, and, and the Chuva is Kuf Yud base. Okay, 
somebody who gave an amount of money to his son-in-law so that he would be able to learn and uh, just to learn Torah. And, and he shouldn't have any financial problems. So he want, and, and he promised to add more according to his needs. So, but the son-in-law wanted to take off 10% of the money that the father gave him. Father-in-law gave him. And the father-in-law said no. He said that's going to cause him a loss because he's going to have to pay more because he's going to help support this, this young man and his daughter. And, 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 and he... And he can't afford to go ahead and take that and give them the 10% of everything he's giving. It's not going to work. And Ramosh agreed with the father-in-law. He didn't have to take off the 10% for, the, for, the, for, the, for that, that family. And they didn't, I, I think they didn't have to take it off either. I assume that was the case. Anyway, what about a finding something? You find a lost object, which is uh, very common. I mean, uh, I don't know how much you... It's a value if you find a... A broken watch, it doesn't cost it. It's not worth anything. But if you, talk, if you find something that's usable, I mean, it has, has value. You might find a pen. I'm not talking about a 10-cent pen. Maybe you'd find a $20 pen. Maybe you'll find uh, money on the, on the ground. So do you have to give, give tzedakah? So, I mean, if you find it in the shul, you'll give it to the shul. But we're talking about you find it in the street. So according to Rabbeinu Yonah, uh, if a person finds something, he has to give Misa. According to the lenient opinion, he doesn't have to, because it's, uh, even even uh, even if you don't have to give to anything, it's only a custom, and it's really only with money. But if you find something, according to the lenient opinion, you don't have to give anything. The flaw says though that even when this is this is wild, and this is this, I'm sure that the people who are listening now, unless you saw the flaw inside would not believe what I'm going to tell you here. And it would affect everybody who's listening. The Hafloh says in Kasubis, Daf Nun Amudalaf, okay? Kasubis, Daf Nun Amudalaf, the Hafloh says that if a person loses some money and gives up hope of finding it, and then he finds it, he has to give what he has to give Meiser. So now I don't know. You have to argue now with uh, with, with Rabbeinu Meir, with, with you know, with, if you, uh, you you promise to give it to uh, a charity for for Meir, Meir Balanais. Now uh, does Rabbeinu Balanais have to share, you know have to share with you? Is Rabbeinu Balanais willing to let you give away ten percent of the money? <laughs> you know. Okay. So anyway, that's that's that. So they are and this is.